Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. When we think about modern trade, we tend to think about the sea, port cities, and large ships carrying goods back and forth. It's a story that tends to put Europe at the center, as the pinnacle of shipping and maritime technology. Jagjit Lali's India and the Silk Roads, The History of a Trading World, corrects this narrative. For Jagjit, the way we talk about globalization misses the continued land trade that happened throughout Central Asia, with India as a hub. Traders traveled through today's India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, sharing commodities and goods, culture and information under both Indian and British rulers. Jagjit is Associate Professor in the History of Early Modern and Modern India at University College London, where he is also Co-Director of the Center for the Study of South Asia and the Indian Ocean World. Today, Jagjit and I will talk about the Indian caravan trade and the routes traders took as they transported goods, cultures, and ideas across Central Asia. We'll also talk about what we miss in the way we talk about globalization in the present day. So, Jagjit, thank you so much for coming on the show. I did want to start this conversation by asking about the book's title. Um, the book refers to the Silk Roads, um, but you don't quite mean, I think, what your average reader may think of when they hear the term Silk Road. What are the trading networks you're talking about in your book? Thank you for having me. And you're absolutely right. Um, my book is about terrestrial forms of connectivity. That's things moving around, not over the skies by plane or across the seas by ship, but over land. Most people think that terrestrial forms of connectivity became insignificant when Europeans developed shipping technology to the extent that they could move across the oceans. And um, historians, therefore, have neglected or ignored what's happening deep inside continents in those places connected by caravans, for example choosing instead to focus on coastlines and river deltas and ports and places nearer to the sea. What my book 
urges us to do is to pause a while and think about those places further from the sea that had been connected by land-based technologies for centuries and centuries, millennia even. And it tries to show just how important and well-connected these places continue to be after the Europeans came to Asia on ship. So after Vasco da Gama's famous voyage and in the decades and centuries that, that followed. And that's, I think, why I invoke the idea of the Silk Roads um, in the title, but also um, through the book, because that's an idea that has helped people to see ter terrestrial connectivity in the centuries and centuries and, and in the millennia even before the ages of, of sail and the, uh, uh, the subsequent age of steam. Um, what I want to do is to, uh, I suppose, remind my readers that the so-called Silk Roads wasn't just one east-west route from China to Europe, um, but a web of routes. And that's something I talk about in the introduction of the book. Um, and I also I remind readers that the east-west land routes um, might have become a little less important after the Europeans found their way to Asia by sail um, on boats ships rather, um, and after they started trading directly with China uh, and India. But I also emphasise that the north-south routes that formed part of the, the larger complex of, of silk routes or silk roads, the, the routes that is that flowed from India into Central Asia and towards Russia, those routes, those north-south routes, actually remained really important. And that's the point of departure for the, for the whole book and what I set up in the introduction. I'm primarily looking at networks that stretch, therefore, from North India through Afghanistan and into Central Asia and Iran. But those were also interlaced with others reaching out into the Indian Ocean, into China and Russia, as well as into the Caucasus, the Arab world, and parts of Eastern Europe. So in that sense, I think um, it does speak to uh, a larger way in which we think about Silk Roads, and then certainly and hopefully um, helps to recenter our attention on terrestrial connectivity. So let's talk about those trading networks a bit. So I guess in short, what was the caravan trade? What goods did they carry? Where did they start from? Where did they end up? Um, yeah. Well, caravan trade is both a very real thing, and I don't, and, and I'm gonna say. Uh, I'm going to talk about how it's also a concept, but I should just, I should start by saying it's a very real thing and, and flesh out what it is, um, I suppose. It's a real thing because semi-nomadic or pastoral groups in possession of huge, huge herds of camel or um, ponies or horses combined their seasonal search for pasturage with um, providing carriage services to those merchants who wanted to transport goods across long distances. And as well as you know, other travellers or pilgrims who wanted to travel safely as part of a group. Typically, Afghan pastoralists would move southward into North India during the drier, cooler months of autumn and winter when there was plenty of pasture and when it was easy to move around the country to sell goods. Um, that was also, incidentally, the season when Indian rulers and parvenus went to war. So there was a market for mercenary service. There was a market for beasts of burden, for war animals, um, which had the potential to be very profitable. So 
um, these trader migratory uh, semi-nomadic pastoral groups could combine these things. They could combine search for pasturage with selling um, their services or their, the services of their animals to um, uh, uh, warrior groups or warriors and warrior leaders, um, as well as selling goods. Um, and merchants, of course, on their own account, also moved and, and sold goods. And then they all left India before the hotter and wetter months, when it was more difficult to move around the country. And instead, they moved the northwards into Kabul and Kandahar, and then to places like Herat and Balkh and Samarkand or Bukhara, and, and many other places, before then repeating the whole cycle again, then moving southwards, before then moving northwards, and moving southwards and moving northwards. So that's the way in which caravan trade is a very real thing. And um, uh, uh, that's something I look at I think chapter one, I set up that um, circulatory pattern. And throughout the book, I look at the whole range of actors who are connected to that seasonal um, circuit, the annual um, movement of people and goods. But it's also a concept. Caravan trade is also a concept in the book. It denotes these circuits and these routes and the web of connections that they form. And it in so doing, it helps us to see two other things, I think. The first um, is the relationships of different places or different types of people to one another. The relationships between production and consumption activities, or between trade and politics, or trade and culture. All of this helps build up a picture of a well-integrated space. A space, I think, um, that has an integrity despite not being a nation or a state um, and being spread across different fleeting empires. Um, so the kinds of places that don't normally get looked at by historians, because historians tend to look often at you know, well-defined nations or states or spaces or empires. And this is sort of um, across and between or beyond those entities. But it is nevertheless a durable and fairly well-defined, albeit evolving space. And I call that space the trading world. And that's the, the subtitle of the, book, of the book is a history of, a, of the trading world. So I'd like to get back to the idea of the trading world a bit later in the interview. Um, but I'd like to continue on this point about, uh, about the, the caravan trade, the real caravan trade, I think, as you, as you said in your answer. Um, so I guess, what was, what was it like to be an Indian trader traveling along these routes? How long did it take? What were the sites you might see, the places you might see? Um, what was it like for, for a trader traveling this, this north-south route? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think the answer really varies because the, the types of merchants um, and their itineraries varied considerably. Um, some Indian merchants moved through the whole circuit, but over quite an extended or elongated period. And here, really, I build on the, the, the work of other scholars, such as Scott Levi, who showed um, in, a, in a really important book um, that Indian merchants would move from North India um, to Central Asia. And that, that journey would be completed in um, uh, one um, uh, half a year, really. Um, and then they would settle in Central Asia for a period of time. They would sell their goods, they would use the profits realized on those sales to reinvest in um, other uh, um, 
goods or perhaps in real estate, um, and they would um, make uh, as much profit as they possibly could. They would a couple of years would pass as they were doing this, and they would write regularly back to their their business partners, their their kinsmen, their their family firms back in North India, and they would send them information about what to send, um, what goods to send, what um, political political conditions were like, and so on. And then after a period of time, a couple of years, they would then typically move back um, to North India. And someone would do this, someone would be sent every year. So I would come and I would um, spend a year there. And then after a year had passed, I would stay there, but someone else, someone new would come. And there'd always be, there'd always be a large grouping of people, of these Indian merchants in, in Central Asia. Um, but there would also be a, a cycling. So someone would come and someone would go. All merchants, however, make the entire journey or the entire circuit. So the the networks of caravan trade are many, and there are many different routes, um, and there are different circuits as well. So there are smaller circuits. So some merchants might simply move between um, North India and Kabul or Kandahar, some or between Kabul and Kandahar and Bukhara. And one of the things I want to do is to decenter our attention away from some of these. Um, large long distance movements to some of these smaller shorter movements and I try and do that repeatedly in the book so I try to look at peddlers for example who move goods deep into the countryside and take some of these goods that we typically think of as being the kinds of things that people in cities or towns would consume and and try and emphasize that actually they diffuse into the countryside through the agency of the and the activity of these peddlers so different merchants have, I think, different itineraries, different um, geographies and scales and temporalities of movement. And that's something that I um, show through the book. And that will affect um, the kinds of places they see. But there are some places and some sites that are fairly um, uh, common in the sense that there's a typical kind of commercial centre. A commercial centre will often have um, uh other functions or purposes, and some of them are um, religious centres or shrine towns. And there are two that come to mind. One, is, of course, is um, Masri Sharif in um, in Balkh. Another really important one that I look at and is a real centrepiece of the book is the city of Multan. And Multan is a, um, uh, a shrine town. It's a Sufi pilgrimage centre, and so devotees of the of particular Sufi saints will come to this pilgrimage center and therefore for decades and centuries people have been um, making pilgrimage and that um, flow of pilgrims has turned Multan into a really important bustling center and it becomes um, a a site of commerce too and it's therefore already a site of uh, commerce or it's already an entrepreneur at the start of the period that I'm looking at roughly in the, uh, the late 17th early 18th century but for various reasons that I examine in the book, it seems to benefit from the decline of the larger capital city of Lahore, not far away. Um, It becomes, therefore, um, I argue in the book, a preeminent city in Punjab connected to caravan trade for most of the 18th and 19th centuries. It's home to some of the major bankers and merchants connected to the life of the trading world. Um, And it only then becomes marginalised to the new colonial economy in the late 19th centuries um, as its significance and its fortune starts to change. So it's at the centre of a lot of the stories I'm telling in the book. Um, and I'd I'd just, like, you know, one I'd last like to... thing. Oh, but, go ahead. Go ahead. 
One last thing I suppose I'd say is that um, another thing I try to show in the book is that these large commercial centres, which are often also pilgrimage centres or political capitals or centres of government or capital cities, they also then connect to um, medium-sized towns and cities. So I try and look at this whole hierarchy, I suppose, not only of merchant activity, so big merchants and peddlers, but of um, commercial centres, so big cities and entrepôts and pilgrimage sites, but then smaller towns and cities, all the way down to the level of the villages and how they're sort of stacked within one another. It's interesting you 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 bring up um, the shrines and, 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 and the pilgrimages because there's a couple linkages there I wanted to bring out. First about religion, I think you said, you know, these pilgrims making these journeys, um, but also about um, security. And I don't mean in the in the broad national sense. We'll get to that in a second. But Honestly, just just the personal security of people traveling these these routes. Um, I guess if what, could you kind of get into kind of both of those ideas and how they might have connected in um, in this trading world? Yes, that's um, really important. Actually, that the merchants and the everyone who's moving as part of the caravan are moving through a series of different places. Um, under the authority of different political um, leaders, different um, tribal groups, and so on. And and there can sometimes be friction between different um, tribal groups. Um, There can sometimes be extortion from particular customs officials, for example. So there are various ways in which the movement of the caravans, the smooth movement of the caravans, can be imperiled. they could be plundered and raided, pillaged, they could be attacked violently, or they could be extorted of a large proportion of their of their um their liquid wealth or their and their goods, or even their animals. And so um, the people organizing the caravans and the merchants need to have some form of security. And there are a number of different ways in which this happens. Um, you know. There are guards who ride up front and they can scope out the territory ahead of the, the caravan and see whether it's safe to move through. Um, they can reroute. So there are not there's not one route, but several routes. And um, they can make a decision if, if a particular territory is really hostile or a particular local customs official or a ruler is really, um, uh, uh, really taking, is extorting lots of, of money, then they can move to different routes. But another way, and this goes back to religion, is through connections with particular holy men. Um, And often the caravans will have a holy man as part of the entourage, as part of the the caravan itself. Because these holy men often have a sort of transcendental authority. They um, have uh, connections with not just one tribal group, but with many tribal groups and a spiritual authority that also transcends particular clan or um, tribe or other forms of lineage. And so they can sort of act as uh, uh, um, uh, to smooth the movement of the caravans, to help the caravans move through peaceably and peacefully through these places. And so Sufi holy men are really important and they are um, they are part of these entourages. Um, there's also some evidence that um, Sikh holy men join the caravans as they move across Punjab and North India. So something very similar is happening there too when um, when the caravans are moving through a very fractious, the equally fractious political space of North India, Sikh holy men can also help to smooth out some of the, the rivalries and tensions that might otherwise imperil or endanger the movement of the caravans. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So now I want to maybe talk about the bigger picture here when it comes to the trading world. Um, and uh, you mentioned before kind of how the trading world is a space that kind of transcends uh, political boundaries. Um, I just want to kind of ask, how did rulers, first Indian and then the British, try to manage these trading networks or try to govern them? Um, I guess, where were they successful and where were they not? And what does that tell us about, again, trade's ability to kind of transcend borders? That's a very good question, but I think it might be a bit of a trick question, or at least maybe it's um, something of a misnomer. It needs to be unpacked a little bit, mm-hmm. because I don't think that um, uh, many rulers actively managed these networks or managed trade um, as such. And let me explain a little, maybe. Um, the Mughals and the British, quite notably, fairly hands-off. They do things like ordering the repair of major roads, very important road is, of course, the Grand Trunk Road that goes all the way from Kabul to Calcutta. Um, they also make sure that there are water wells and caravanserais um, and that they're kept in good order so that there are decent facilities for traders and travellers. And we know there are, there's a major um, programme of road repairs that are made when the British are expanding up the Gangetic Valley from Calcutta towards Delhi and then from Delhi into Punjab, for example. We know that the Mughals and their counterparts in other parts of um, Eurasia, so the Safavids and the Uzbeks, they also order these kinds of um, infrastructural improvements, if you like. But pretty much everything else is delegated either to sub-imperial authorities, so to local um, power holders who are uh, part of the empire, or as I've already kind of uh, indicated, they're, they're delegated to those who are part of the caravans themselves. So I've talked about um, the provision of security, for example. And that's something that the caravans take on themselves rather than you know, they're not provided necessarily with an armed guard, for example. I mean, that um, all being said, there is one story which is at the heart of the book and um, is about the relationship of caravan trade to the emergence of the Afghan or Durrani Empire in 1747. And it's spread across a large swathe of the trading world. And in chapter in the chapter on power, I examine the very close connection of Afghan tribal groups with trade and the life of, um, of major commercial centers in North India, their relationships with Indian bankers, and the collaboration of these two groups in the launching of those campaigns into North India against the Mughals and their local successors that resulted in the establishment of the Afghan kingdom. And the result, indeed, was the creation of a new political authority from within this space, from within the trading world. But reflexively, what it also does is it means that the Afghans need to nurture trade in the local economy. And we see this great revivification of trade um, in the later 18th century and into the early 19th century. So for the most part, you know, rulers don't really have a very hands-on approach. The Afghans, I suppose, for them... 
trade is part of the reason, is part of the cause of their expansion, and it's also an effect. They also kind of support it. But even then we see, and I, I show this in various chapters, they it's supported largely through um, local agencies, so sub-imperial officers who are promoting irrigation, um, uh, investments in irrigation, investments in producing new cash crops, um, making sure there are local facilities, and then through people um, themselves. So what ultimately ends is, is a strong word, but I'm going to use it. What ultimately ends this trading network? I think that's another trick question, <laughs> because... I'm not sure if caravan trade ever really ends um, so much as continues to evolve, much as terrestrial forms of connectivity have been evolving for decades and centuries and millennia. Um, But perhaps to answer your question more sincerely, um, this is something that I do turn to in the the, quite closely in the last few chapters of the book and, and in the conclusion. And what I try to emphasize is that a very particular configuration of terrestrial connectivity or caravan trade, the the, the configuration that I've been looking at in the book, was becoming both less significant to local economies um, within the erstwhile trading world um, after their absorption into British India and Russian Central Asia in the second half of the 19th century. Um, And that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens Um, beyond it becoming less important, less significant, much more marginal, is that there is Russian policy, um, a series of prohibitions, for example, on particular goods entering into Russian Central Asia, which then starts to sever the link between um, India and Central Asia. So there's a process, I suppose, of peripheralization or marginalization that happens first. These Spaces become integrated into new colonial economies where there are different kinds of opportunities, different um, kinds of um, uh, employment is available. Um, They are um, producing different kinds of goods. There are different kinds of connections that become more important. And then a process of uh, partitioning, I guess, um, where these spaces become cut off a little bit from one another. But people do continue to move across this space. And there, there is, on a perhaps a shrunken scale, a, a movement of um, caravans. And um, One of the things I kind of end the book by doing is by connecting with the work of anthropologists and other kinds of scholars who've shown that Afghan merchants, for example, and Indian merchants do remain important in Central Asia. Um, Afghan merchants respond to different opportunities that are available um, in the Soviet period and in the post-Soviet period. And we see a a continued evolution of long-distance terrestrial forms of connectivity. Maybe not quite caravan trade as it looked in the 19th century or in the 18th century, but um, a version or um, uh, uh, an evolution from it, certainly. Right. So, I mean, and and I too agree that that asking what ended the caravan trade, I also agree was a trick question. Um, but but I guess it means kind of leads into maybe my next question, which is kind of what you've already gestured at, which is, you know, what what evidence do you see of the caravan trade today, not just in the history that's left that might still be visible, but also in the way that the region as a whole currently trades with each other? Yeah, that's, um, that's something I look at or we touch upon rather in the conclusion of the book. And I mean, I open the book by by talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and talking about um, 
the revivification of railway lines that are laid down in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that become largely defunct, but are, are being um, uh, revamped. They're being connected to new railway lines. There's an attempt to move um, goods from China to uh, uh, Eastern Europe, but also you know, through countries like Kazakhstan. And uh, that is also interleaved with or interlaced with other kinds of networks towards the south. And so there is a kind of um, uh, a, a rebirth of the Silk Roads, as some scholars have argued. And I certainly see parallels with what's happening today. But I also just see an evolution of, of um, I see parallels between what I write about in my book and, and what we see today, but I also just see an evolution of that. I mean, I see, I think of it, um, I don't think there's a, a a rebirth, as such as other scholars have said, but really just an evolution of terrestrial connectivity. Because I, you know, just to emphasize, one of the things I try to say in the book is that terrestrial connectivity doesn't just die and disappear, right? So there's, there's this notion that it dies and disappears around about 1400 or 1500, and now, look, we have these new Silk Roads. And one of the things I try to show in the book is that that doesn't quite happen. So I see resonances, I see similarities, um, I see uh, also some differences, some new developments. But really what I hope for the book is that people pick it up and um, whether they agree with it and um, work with some of the concepts and ideas, you know, some of the ideas I have, for example, about uh, the relationship between power and violence and um, long-distance trade or between this kind of trade and material culture and the need to study the kinds of things people buy and what, what, um, how they're important to them. So whether people pick it up and they engage with that stuff or whether they're very critical of it, I hope that they do make those connections. Um, and people better qualified than me, perhaps, people who know a little bit more about um, the modern period than I do. So I think I've got a couple more questions. And I think for this next one, I want to go really, really big picture, um, which <laughs> is uh, what does the land-based Central Asian trade that you discuss in your book tell us about the history of globalization? That's a really valuable question because it cuts to, you know, one of the central arguments of the book, I suppose, which is that there is no history of globalization, no singular history, that is. Um, there are, I think, multiple globalizations, multiple cores, multiple processes, multiple histories. Um, and they're intersecting, um, and that's really important, and to study the places and the moments and the process by which they intersect and the, the consequences of it is really important. But as historians, I think we need to get away from this idea that there's a single big story about how we got to the modern, connected, globalised world that we live in today. There isn't a single macro narrative, and I think we need to tell multiple stories. And I think this is something that hopefully will resonate with readers of the book who perhaps are um, coming to the book from their knowledge of where we are today, um, who are thinking about the Belt and Road Initiative, who are thinking about a modern globalised economy in which China is one really important core, for example. Um, it is a hub of you know, so many connections. Um, and so this idea that there is a, a, you know, a globalisation which spurts out of the West and spreads across the rest of the world, um, I think that, you know, our, our reflecting on where we are today challenges that. But I think we should take that into the past. And that's what I try and do in the book. I, in the book, I try and say that there are multiple globalizations. We need to study these very different processes and places um, separately. 
So I think for my last question, I'd actually like to talk about what it was like to um, to write the book. So what was it like to kind of, you know, develop this this new telling of globalization, um, the research you did, and also where do you think your research will lead you next? Well, I mean, the answer to the question of what it was like to write the book is that it was an immense amount of fun. <laughs> it was really good fun to um, rewrite the book, but more importantly, to do the research for the book. Um, I got to travel to um, lots of places. I got to work with lots of amazing people and, and to speak with lots of um, really knowledgeable people. And I'll forever be indebted to um, all those archivists and librarians in particular who you know, providing me with loads of material to look at and who were, you know, very informative and um, very helpful and provided suggestions of their own. There are a couple of things that really stand out for me when I, I when I look back uh, on those years when I was doing the research. One was working in the National Archives in New Delhi, which is vitally important to the book. Um, lots of the material came from there and it was a really great place to work. I remember my lunches um, in the canteen for the archive staff. They were always very nutritious I remember once having a monkey um, stealing my bread while I was looking the other way and almost gave me a heart attack. Um, but it was a really great place to work. I remember um, going to Mumbai and finding this sort of collection of 18th century documents, which helped me write about um, that moment that I've talked about, that moment when the Afghans are expanding across um, North India, across the, the, the trading world, where they're establishing an empire how they're both nourished by trade networks that exist, but also then plowing their, their money back into the local economy. Um, and I would end my days, you know, looking at these wonderful documents, going into the, the cafe of the Jahangir Art Gallery and having a samosa and, and kind of reflecting on all the stuff I found. Not all my, my stories and my, my fond remembrances are about food, but quite a lot of them I, now, I, now I think about it. Um, yeah, I'm going to Pakistan and finding material that opens the chapter on knowledge, which is a, this kind of completely paranoid, frenzied um, set of correspondences um, from the, this British official who's worried that there is a spy because he finds this scrap of paper that has Russian script on it and thinking, wow, I've never read about this in any other book that I've been reading. And this must be something that no one else has looked at. And that was really good fun. And working in the archives of the Victorian and other museum in London, that was um, really uh, really great because I got to work in a very different kind of environment with very different material. And so, yeah, it was really lots of really wonderful experiences and wonderful moments. And I hope that someone picks up the book and says, wow, I want to work with that kind of material and, and looks for even more material because I'm sure there is more material out there. Um, it's shaped my interest in marketplaces and bazaars and how we um, or how people in the past bought and sold things, how they shopped, the experience of shopping, of commerce. I think we know, you know, one of the things I look at in this book is exchange and that exchange takes place. What we know less about, I think, as historians, is how people bought and sold stuff, how what it was like to go to a marketplace or to a bazaar and buy something. And I think that is something that I started thinking about as I finished this book and that I want to take into a future project. So thank you for listening to an interview with Jagjit Lali, author of India and the Silk Roads, The History of a Trading World. Um, Jagjit, I actually have one final question for you. You've kind of answered part of it already, um, but 
my question is, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next for you? Let's make it a what's next for you in the short term, because you've already kind of answered your kind of future um, research priorities, I guess. What's next for me? I've been writing a bit about Burma, so um, uh, colonial Burma. So that's something that is coming out. Um, and immediately I'm uh, taking a holiday, <laughs> much needed holiday. And then I'm finishing a book about India in the early modern world, which is a kind of comparative global history of South Asia in the centuries from 400 to about 1750. So that's the next year, I suppose, of my life. Um and um, I forgot, I've totally forgotten the other question. Well, the other question, that's kind of where can people find your work? The really important question. Um, it is available in multiple places. So if you are listening and you're in South Asia, um, HarperCollins India have just published a new South Asia version of the book, uh, which is available in all good bookshops and online. Um, the global edition is published by Hearst. Um, and can be ordered directly from the Hearst website. OUP, if you're in North America, OUP has published the North American version. And if you're in a university or an institution with an institutional um, uh, subscription to Oxford University Press, um, you can also find it online. So many places, no excuses. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you we hope you subscribe to listening to the Asian Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Join us next week for an interview with Lindsay Miller, author of North Korea Like Nowhere Else, Two Years of Living in the World's Most Secretive State. But before then, thank you so much, Jagjit, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.